Okay, thanks, thanks everyone for coming, tuning in, and uh, attending on Zoom. We are continuing our class on Piyut tonight and the Paitanim in general. And tonight we have a really fascinating topic. Tonight we're going to discuss a man who was one of the greatest men in his generation, a Gadol Hador, as it were, however, is basically anonymous today, obscure. This person fell into obscurity hundreds and hundreds of years ago and was last uh, esteemed and renowned a thousand years ago. So in order to do that, we're going to have to recap where we are in the Pythonic era. We're going to have to recap a little bit of the classical period, the post-classical period, and to get everybody back on track for, we missed a week for, because of Shavuot, just to get back on track for uh, where we're holding in Piyut. But tonight's yours is really discussing someone most haven't heard of before and would need a little background uh, to understand. So as we mentioned, there, the scholars of Piyut like to divide the eras of uh, poetic production in, 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 in Jewish liturgy, right? Piyut means uh, liturgical poetry. I like to divide these eras into different periods. And this is, periodization helps for different classifications. It helps communicate what you're teaching. And the classical period, which we discussed earlier, um, existed between the 6th to the 8th centuries. We discussed for briefly the pre-classical period with Yossi ben Erbiosi and the, the Talmudic era. But after the Talmudic era and Erbiosi ben Erbiosi and the simpler forms of poetry came the classical era. The classical era of Piyot was marked by the early Paitanim of Eretz Yisrael, like Rabbi Elezer HaKalir and Yanai and other famous uh, Paitanim of that era who accomplished large amounts, writing large amounts of piyutim, which became really, really popular uh, for many, many, many hundreds of years. Their emphasis in that era was mostly a type of kirova, a type of piyut written for Shmona Esrei called the Kiddushta, which elements of which still survive today. And we discussed many of the Paitanim in that era and then moved on a little further. So now, if you understand something about the, the state of the Jewish people in the 8th and 9th and 10th centuries, you'll understand that the Jewish people lived in two main areas of, of uh, let's call it, rabbinic um, jurisdictions. There were the Jews who lived in, in and under the influence of the yeshivot of Eretz Yisrael, and there were the Jews who lived in and under the influence of the Jews of Bavel and Baghdad. Now, the history of this, we, we have to give a little bit of the background of the history of this. Last week we spoke about Rav Saad Yagaon and all of his contributions in that era, right? The post-classical era during the time of the Geonim in the 9th and 10th century, right? This, this, this era here at the middle of the Gaonic era. So we, we spoke a little bit, bit about that era of Saad Yagaon. What, what were the Yeshivot in Bavel? So as we mentioned, the Yeshivot in Bavel were these tremendously powerful institutions. 
they were comprised mainly in the, in the later years of, of two yeshivot known as Sura and Pumpadita, which moved later from Sura and Pumpadita, or Naharda'a and Matemachsia, they moved to Baghdad, which was the, uh, at least the Abbasid Caliphate's, uh, the Abbasid Caliphate's uh, capital was in Baghdad, so that was where the yeshivot moved. Now these two yeshivot, were comprised of the scholars of their time. It was the main training center for, for rabbis. This was an era where Gemara wasn't, uh, wasn't studied out of a book. Gemara was memorized, and the Pirushim, the, com- the understanding of the Gemara was memorized. And the, yeshiva had, the yeshivot had a structure similar to the Sanhedrin, where you would have uh, 70 people who were the main scholars, and then you had many other students who didn't have an official seat. So they had like 70 official seats, and then all the other students who would come around. So those 70 people were like the main scholars of the yeshiva who received a stipend. Everybody else who came had to pay their own way through the yeshiva. And the yeshiva was headed by three main people. First, the, the, the Rosh Yeshiva de Gaon Yaakov, popularly known as the Gaon, the Av Beitin underneath him. And finally, the Reish Galuta, who was the, the head of the uh, the exilarch, right? The head of the Jews in Galut. Typically, his family came from from the Davidic dynasty. And finally, after all those those three people, politics and power aside, you had something called the Rashi Kala, right? The heads of the ten the ten rows, right? There were ten rows or seven rows, depending which story you believe. Seven or ten rows, and the head of each row was a distinguished scholar. They would call, be called Aluf or the Resh Kala. And this is just a fun fact. If you've ever been to a Yarche Kala, this comes from the old, uh, the old se- semesters in the, the Shivot, in those, those academies in Bavel, where they would have two months of the year, which were public semesters, the Yarche Kala. And that meant the months of the rose, where they would invite the public and everybody else to the main classes that were given for two months a year. And these were basically... Um, where, where they would teach the most important things and they would, they would test all the 70 scholars and then assign them a tractate, a, a for the next for the next coming year. And uh, everybody would, would, um, would then spend the rest of the winter or the rest of the summer doing the mesechta they were supposed to do. It was a fascinating institution. And it wasn't just an institution of learning, it was also an institution of power. You had different rishuyot, or governances, or jurisdictions, which different alufim, or rashi kala, were in charge of. And these different uh, rashi kala, these different uh, chiefs, so to speak, had the power to designate different jurisdictions, let's say in uh, Tunisia, or, or Karwan, or, or the community in Egypt, or the community in Spain. They had the, the, the power to designate who was going to be their rabbi, who was going to be their beit din. So there was a tremendous amount of power in invested in those yeshivot. I, I was reading some excerpts from Natan HaBavli. Natan HaBavli was one of the uh, uh, early, early Rishonim who attended Yarche Kala in Bavel, and he, and he writes his, his experience and everything that he saw and everything that he learned about the yeshivot in Bavel. And um, he has a lot to say, and it's, it's funny that just, I think anyone who lives in Lakewood would, would appreciate this. He said that the yeshivot depended on, on the their financing, their economics, depended on three main sources. How did they fund the yeshiva? Number one, donations, obviously. The second third was funded by government money, which is, you know, internal taxation, Jewish taxation of 
uh, the people. And lastly, real estate investments. If this sounds familiar to anybody in Lakewood, the, uh, the yeshiva with surplus funds would invest in real estate and land in order to support uh, the yeshiva. So there's a very sophisticated system. There's, and here's a story that would never happen today. Uh, there was once a Reish Galuta who was, uh, uh, Mar Ukfa, I think his name was, and he was uh, caught embezzling funds and some important bankers got in the way and important Jewish bankers got in front of him and they got, went to the government and they ousted him. Lots of fun stuff in the, in the, in the stories of Natan Habavli. But my point is, the Babylonian yeshivot were centers of power which had a lot of influence. And Sadiaga Gaon's position there allowed him to have a very prolific influence on many, many areas and faces of Jewish life. He was one of the most influential people in the history of Judaism, just most people aren't familiar with how he had that influence. And this is really, really early, so this is why there's less familiarity with how much of Sadia Gaon introduced and canonized in Judaism. So now, the state of affairs that Sadia Gaon was walking into was what he perceived as chaos. After the class, the state of uh, uh, poetic affairs, I should just narrow our conversation here. Um, now, after the classical period, there were many uh, other poets who tried to either imitate or accompany the poets of old. The, now, the problem was that the Babylonian Jews, let's call it the Baghdadi Jews, so to speak, or the Jews outside of Eretz Yisrael, couldn't simply say the piyutim that were written in Eretz Yisrael. That wouldn't have worked because the piyutim written in Eretz Yisrael were written usually for a tri annual cycle, the three-year cycle of reading the Torah, while in Babel and everywhere else, everybody read the Torah throughout a year. There's a 54-part cycle. So all of the Putim, which have references and allusions and correspond to the Parshiot uh, in the triennial cycle, had to be adapted for the Babylonian cycle. So you add this complication, that everybody's trying to truncate, to add, to delete, Basically, what ended up happening was that when they finally brought the Pew team to Bavel, the, the the rabbis started getting frustrated with how some people would put in some uh, would uh, at least with Sadiagon was, was was frustrated that some people would would put in some parts of one Pew and not parts of the other. They they would they would they would um, add their own mastad or it's the Arabic word for like introduction. They would add their own refrains, their own choral refrains. There was also a new popularity in Bavel for people to add choruses. One of the Rashi Galuta actually hired a chorus of young of young men that they were going to be the chorus in in, in the yeshiva, which Rabbi Gaon centuries earlier would have never tolerated because earlier in Bavel they didn't tolerate piyutim, but only later it became more tolerated. So, in the yeshivot in Bavel, Sadia Gaon saw how the classical piyutim were getting destroyed and no one was saying them properly, no one understood them, and um, the, the new poets were just writing terrible poetry, not nearly as good as the classical poets, so he took the bull by the horns, he decided to write his own piyutim, write his own yotzrot, um, wrote it, write his own krovot, and to try to rein in what he considered proper liturgical poetry, and he would he would innovate many areas of grammar. He innovated, we said that he, he, um, he innovated in many areas of Hebrew. He had his own style. He put in scriptural allusions. He had, um, he had philosophical allusions that was new. 
very new to put in philosophical allusions. He had much more sophisticated systems of rhyme that he added to poetry, and so many more. One of his uh, best accomplishments, for example, was to, to uh, give the personal voice to the piyut instead of the collective. The classical poets always spoke from the sense of the cantor, right? The person who was going to the shliach tibur was going to say it for the kahal, so he spoke in the collective voice. Sadia Gaon specialized in also adding a personal voice to the piyutim so the people themselves could actually read the piyutim and, 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 uh, and, and feel moved by it personally. Now, Rafsadi Gaon had what some later scholars would consider a flaw in that his actual poetry, what he considered wonderful poetry, is very obtuse. It's very difficult to, to parse. If you're academic and you're a scholar, it's intimidating even to you to try to decipher what, what his poems even mean. Now, they're very advanced Hebrew and they're very academically impressive, but does it reach poetic beauty? Not really. The only things that reach beauty in his, in his writings are his personal prayers, which were not written in poetic form whatsoever. And those uh, beautiful, beautiful tefillot, similar to his, contem- his older contemporary, Nassim al-Nahrawani, those, those um, uh, who is famous for the, for the vidui de Rabbeinu Nassim, those prayers are, uh, are what's, what mostly stuck. So now, in order to understand the person who we're going to discuss tonight, we have to understand the yeshivot in Eretz Yisrael. The person we're going to discuss tonight, his name was Rabbi Shmuel Hashlishi, Rabbi Shmuel III. And his full name was Rabbi Shmuel Beribi Hoshana Hashlishi. His name was Shmuel, the son of Hoshana, funny that that's a name, Hoshana Hashlishi III. So now what does it mean that he was the third? Okay. Let's rewind a little bit. Originally, in the 5th, 6th, 7th, early 7th centuries, the Jews of, uh, let's call it Egypt and Israel, Sicily, etc., were, not so much Egypt, but the the Jews of the West were under the Byzantine Empire. I'm sorry, the, the Jews of the East were under the Muslim rule, and the Jews of the West were under the Byzantine Empire, right? The Jews in the East were controlled by the Muslims, and then the Jews in the West, or, the, or you know, whatever Arabs you had, and then the Jews in the West were controlled by the Byzantines. So you had this difficulty in communication between the two different empires. One empire uh, was speaking Arabic, the other empire was speaking a whole bunch of languages, and because of the, the difficulty in communication uh, it, the, because of the different boundaries of the empires and the differences in languages, it was very hard for these two areas, these two schools to communicate. Then came the Muslim conquests. And the Muslim conquests, with their, out, with their literally astonishing success, um, conquered many, many vast areas of land, right? So you had the, I think it was the Rashidun Caliphate conquered Eretz Israel in Egypt, and you had a uh, the Abbasid, which was originally the, uh, I forgot which caliphate it was originally, uh, conquered Baghdad and uh, those areas, I mean, I'm calling it Baghdad, but th- these areas had completely different names at the time. And when, my point is, when, when, the Arab, when the Muslim Arabic-speaking people conquered the areas that covered both Eretz Israel and um, Bavel, communication became a lot easier. However, there was still a political division here, and that is that there was a yeshiva that survived in Eretz Yisrael, in Tiveria, 
or I should say, originally in Yerushalayim, and then Tavera, and Tavera, and Yerushalayim, whatever, they moved around a little bit. And this yeshiva also mimicked the Gaon-like structure of Bavel. But they controlled the, the Rishuyot, or the jurisdictions, that were originally under the Byzantine Empire. So the, their jurisdictions included places like Sicily, Italy, Palermo, uh, the, Egypt, the Egyptian community, they included uh, Lebanon, Damascus, a lot of, uh, and, all the and all the major cities in Eretz Israel. Their jurisdiction for their rabbinic power covered all of those areas. And they had a slightly different system of governance. So in their system, they didn't, they, they perhaps had, I think they have an oval-shaped uh, Beit Midrash, I'm not sure how they did their Sanhedrin-type thing, but their funding worked a little bit differently. They didn't uh, have as much money as the Shivot and Eretz Yisrael, but they, in, they did not have a Reish Galuta. Their Gaon, or their chief rabbi, was always the head of the Jews, period. Second to him was the Av Beitin. So because the Gaon HaYeshiva was always the first, the Av Beitin was the second, the third person in the yeshiva was always the third greatest person, Hashlishi and Haravi'i. So it always went by number, from one all the way down to 70. So the Rishon was the Gaon, the second person was the Av Beitin, the third was the scribe. He was the official uh, he was head of communications for the yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael. And Hashlishi was a very, very prestigious position. You might not have been you know, the, uh, the Rosh Yeshiva, but you were one of the main decision makers in the Yeshiva. So now how much do we know about this person? So there is what we know about what life was like in Eretz Yisrael in those eras, in the 10th century in particular. So in the 10th century, the situation in Eretz Yisrael got very complicated. The Byzantines and the, the Muslims battled out for different territories in Eretz Yisrael. When the Jews were under Muslim rule, they had a lot more, um, well, let's call it somewhat more freedom than they did under the Christians. The Christians didn't allow them to go to, to Yushalayim, but the Muslims did. The Muslims had other restrictions, but, but the Muslims did allow them to visit Yushalayim, and therefore they were able to do uh, a, a yearly or you know, they did many, I think it was twice yearly, they were able to do big uh, uh, festival uh, gatherings in Yerushalayim every year. But because the Fatimid Caliphate was constantly in fighting and retreating, going back and getting forth, it was very difficult for the Jews under the Fatimid Caliphate. The Fatimids were generally less tolerant than the Abbasids in Baghdad. The Abbasids were you know, they heralded the golden age of uh, the Islamic productivity, and they were a center of academia and a center of learning, a center of culture. They, they uh, sponsored learning. They, the, the, they were much, much more progressive and modern than the Fatimids were in the West. Well, relatively the West. So they had a pretty difficult time keeping the Shivot in 
Eretz Yisrael. The 10th century really saw the decline of the yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael, not just because of the political reasons, but also because funding started to dry up as people started moving out of Eretz Yisrael. So, for example, even though they wanted to keep the yeshiva in, uh, in um, I believe it was Tveria, the most of the Chachamim would spend their time a lot in Ramla, which was one of the more uh, wealthy, uh, more populated Jewish cities at the time. However, there was this Bedouin revolt that occurred in Ramla. I believe it was in 1011 or so, and many of the Jews had to flee, and all migrated to Fustat, which was another Fatimid uh, stronghold, another Fatimid area, which uh, Fustat, I should say, is Cairo in, in Egypt, which is another Fatimid stronghold. And the, part of the issue of the Roshi, part of the issue of the Jews living under the Fatimid Caliphate was that in Bavel, in Baghdad, they, the politics were a little bit more complicated for the Jews. There was the Reish Galuta, who was like, as far as the Goyim were understood, he was the president of the Jews, and internally they governed their own affairs, right? You had the, 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 the Gaon of the Yeshiva, and he, he dealt with everything internal, and the Reish Galuta dealt with everything external. But the Gaon in Eretz Yisrael, as far as the Caliph was, was concerned, the Gaon was in charge of all the Jews under his purview. Everybody from Eretz Yisrael to, to everybody who was under the Fatimid Caliphate, North Africa, everybody who was in his empire, they were subject to what that rabbi said under, in, in his mind. So the rabbi, the, 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 whoever was considered the, right, whoever was considered the Gaon was deeply um, responsible for everything that happened to the Jews all over the, the uh, jurisdiction. So whether there were religious um, uh, restrictions and all sorts of problems, this ultimately came back to the decisions in Eretz Yisrael. And as the Bedouins and others started to, uh, what's it called, make travel to Eretz Yisrael more difficult, the power of Eretz Yisrael and all the Geonim started to just move out. And after it almost, uh, from, the, from the 10th to the 11th century, eventually the, even the Geonim just, they moved into Fustat and Cairo. There was a large Eretz Yisrael type community in Cairo in the 11th century, but that was the remainder and the end of the Eretz Yisrael, like the, the Western branch of Judaism. That was, that was what led to that decline. So now, as I mentioned, in Ramla, um, there was this, in Ramla, there was a revolt by the Bedouins, and the Jews fled for their life. So in 1011, in 1011 our figure, Rishmuel Hashlishi, who the Rishmuel, who was the third of the yeshiva, went to Fustat. Now, this was not his first time in Cairo. Rishmuel Hashlishi, we have letters from him in the year 970, where he was already distinguished enough in the yeshiva that he was on a trip to Sicily, and he was collecting money for the yeshiva in Sicily. We also have records of him having visited Palermo. We have records of him visiting um, Cairo, and perhaps he even visited Syria. He was distinguished enough in the yeshiva already in the 970s to be an emissary of the yeshiva, and he was, they, they knew that they could send this person and he would impress. This person was somebody that they could impress uh, and raise money for the yeshiva. Originally, when he, in the 970s, the 980s, 
when he would sign his name, he would never sign his name Hashlishi because he didn't get that job yet. He would sign his name Rabbi Shmuel HaChaver. Chaver meant like, you know, the scholar or the Tamid Chacham, that you were an official Tamid Chacham of the Eretz Yisrael Academy. You weren't an Aluf, you weren't a Reish Kala. They called you a Chaver. And then eventually we see him get promoted, Rabbi Shmuel Haravi'i. It is likely he got that promotion because of an interesting story where there was a competition in the yeshiva for, uh, for the Geonate. Somebody wanted to, to, to have a coup and take over the, the, the Geonic um, seat of power. And he wrote a letter to Shmuel Hashlishi that if you uh, join me in my coup, I will make you Av Beitin or something like that. And Shmuel Hashlishi had none of it, destroyed the coup, and stayed loyal to the existing dynasty of Geonim, which he believed were from the Davidic dynasty. So this probably got him promoted to the level of Hashlishi, a very important, very, very respected position. So, as I said, he arrived in Fustat in 1011. In that time, the, because of the difficulty in communication, the Jews of Cairo had two communities. One was called like the community, the Babylonian community, so to speak, right? The Jews who were under the Yeshivot of Babel. The other community was under the community of Eretz Yisrael, right? The Maravim. Those people had their own rabbi, or Shmaria ben Al-Khanan. Rishmaria ben Al-Khanan was possibly trained in the Yeshivot in Eretz Yisrael, possibly trained in, in Babel. I, I don't remember the specifics of his life. But he was very, very much respected, and he almost had an autonomous governance over the Rishut of Cairo, of Fustat. So when Rabbi Shmuel ben Rabbi Hoshana came to Cairo to escape the oppression in Eretz Yisrael, there was a tragic plague that occurred in Eretz Yisrael, in Cairo, which took the life of Rav Shmariah ben Al-Khanan. Rav Shmariah ben Al-Khanan died from this plague shortly after Rav Shmuel ben Rav Hoshana arrived. This led to a great void in the community, and they didn't know who was going to lead them. So he was Rav Shmariah ben Al-Khanan. He also had a son named Al-Khanan who was on a trip to raise money for the community. I believe he was in somewhere in Italy or something. He was, he, or was it in, no, he was, he was in Lebanon or something. He was far away and he had, took him months to get back from when the time he heard that his father passed away. Elchanan was supposed to take over his father. He was, he was definitely uh, appropriate. He was a tremendous Tamil and everyone wanted him to take over his father, but there were many months that it was going to take and a torturous journey, which it took him a, literally a torturous journey for him to get back to Cairo to take over the community. And in that time, Rabbi Shmuel Hashlishi was trusted as the rabbi to lead the community in the proper affairs. And when somebody tried, again, a coup, to take over the rabbinate in the absence of Rav Shmariah, Rabbi Shmuel Hashlishi squashed it, and he did not allow that to occur. So he was a tremendously powerful, tremendously respected figure throughout Klai Yisrael. He was considered like their Gadol Hadar. And as it, it, in absence of one of the, of the Gaon of Eretz Yisrael, or in absence of the Avbetin of Eretz Yisrael, he was respected to take charge of the community, the large community, in Cairo. Now, throughout his life, as far as we can tell, he was very productive as a Chazan and as a Paitan. He developed his own styles, and it is likely that when he got to Eretz Yisrael, 
he took the position of Shliach Tzibor for the he took the position of Shliach Tzibor for the Kahal. Some of the poetry that he writes directly tells us the history of what happened in Cairo during his time. Some of it tells us the history of what happened in Eretz Yisrael. He's very descriptive. One of his more famous compositions is something called Megillat Mitzrayim, Megill, like the Megillah of Mitzrayim. He wrote this Megillah, so to speak, because of a miracle that, that occurred to him and to his, to his colleagues. The miracle goes like this. This was first discovered in like in 1924. Uh, nobody had heard of a Shmuel Hashlishi until until like 1896 when the Cairo Geniza was open and they found hundreds of his poems. No one had heard of this, heard of this person. But here was this the first thing they found from him was not one of his longer poems, but this Megillat Mitzrayim. The Megillat Mitzrayim tells the story of the funeral of Rashmaria ben Al-Khanan. When Rashmaria ben Al-Khanan passed away from the plague, there was a funeral procession, and a bunch of Muslim bandits attacked the procession. I don't know if they were lawless, but they were some bandits who felt that they had some reason to arrest a tremendous amount of Jews. They threw them all in prison, literally with iron on their you know, shackles, everything, the whole nine yards. And they were literally almost killed. There, according to him, it was a miracle that there was petitions by the Jews, by the, by the uh, soon-to-be widows, to the caliph, and they were released three days later. The reason the caliph released them was because, uh, as, as uh, well, as primitive as the, as the Fatimid caliphate was to the Abbasid caliphate, they still had law. And this caliph, whose name was al-Hakim, uh, yeah, I forgot, Abri'im Allah, I think was his name, um, Ibrim Allah, basically Hakim, who does as God says, he understood that there were no, there was no legal uh, cause for them to hold them under arrest, and therefore he released them. So he wrote an entire Megillah for the Nase for the miracle, and then he uh, he he praises the Caliph as being a wonderful guy. I, I suppose that 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 praise was a little bit. Um, political in nature simply because that caliph was known uh, in secret as the the madman the insane right the caliph who was insane because he was a nutcase and all many of his rules were irrational and he he, he was he was not good for the jews in general but he praises him and every year following they would fast on the third of shabbat why that's important is that for those fasts he wrote poems called krovot and slichot and kinot he wrote many poems for the occasion of the third of Shabbat, because the Cairo community was traumatized by that um, attack on the funeral procession. So let's move a little further. We do know that he wrote hundreds of Yotzrot, at least about 155, because Thurman Hag was to read the Torah in three years with a cycle of roughly 155 Sidarim. And therefore, because he wrote a Yotzer for every Shabbat, he wrote roughly 155 Yotzerot. Now, if you do some quick napkin math, you'll notice that if every Yotzer contains between, I don't know, six to eight piyutim, he wrote easily seven, eight hundred poems right there. But he also wrote plenty of slichot. He wrote plenty of kinot. He wrote krovot. He wrote uh, mastars, as I've mentioned. He wrote introductions. He wrote a new type of poem called a rahat, which was like a a new uh, type of way of doing a, an existing Calarian poem. He experimented in all forms of poetry 
uh, that were known at the time. And what makes him really stand out as a poet was that he borrows the classical period structures for poetry, but he brings in a language which is so new and beautiful that it really dwarfs uh, the, the productivity of anybody before him. And next week we'll speak about one of his contemporaries who is comparable to him, Rabbi Yosef Ibn Abitur. But just discussing what he did was, was simply uh, amazing. He drew inspiration from what Rav Sadia Gaonha did, but he went further than Rav Sadia. Rav Sadia had this, Rav Sadia had these tremendous uh, aspirations for what poetry should be. It should be perfect Hebrew, it should be tzachut halashon, right? It should be a fine, fine language. It should add philosophy, and it should speak about midrashim. It should have science in it. It should be didactic. It should be able to teach people. All of these great ideas that came along with Sadiagon's poetry. But he didn't execute them on that. He didn't execute them all at once. Rishmol Hashlishi was able to write poetry, which was both uh, sophisticated, it was classical in the sense that it followed most of the original rules. It had beautiful, beautiful language. Its uh, grammar was pretty much uh, fairly good. He would borrow uh, better, he would borrow more sophisticated words from Hebrew or newer Hebrew or Aramaic, and he would add science and he would add philosophy when he felt it was appropriate. And his work was so, beautiful, that it remained extremely popular in Egypt for a very long time, at least until the 12th or 13th centuries. It was still very much of interest in in Egypt, and people would recite them for many of the Shabbats, until, basically until the Egyptian community of Eretz Yisrael, uh, the, Eret, the, the Marabi, right, the, the Western Jewish community of Eretz Yisrael declined, they were still saying his Putim for a good two, three hundred years, and it was very, very much endeared to the people of uh, the people who said it. When when um, one of one of these scholars of Piat, uh, Ezra Fleischer, they they, they named the, the Ezra Fleischer Medieval po- uh, Poetry Research Institute after him. Um, the, the institute that that, he, that was founded for him actually did most of the work on reviving and and bringing back the the poetry of Shmuel Hashishi to life. And he, Ezra Fleischer himself writes in his Sefer on Yotzrot, page 196, he basically says that the poetic beauty to which Rishmuel HaShlishi rose, like the, the beauty of some of his poems, is something that wasn't seen until, until, until the Spanish medieval poets, like until 200 years later when the, the poets in Spain, well, 150 years later at least, at least the, the poets of Spain began using completely new Arabic styles. It wasn't until then that we saw such beauty in liturgical poetry. Yerushmuel Hashishi was really a standout Paitan in terms of, of, of his poetry. And it's really, really a shame that so much of it was lost to history. And it, it's well known in the, in, the, in, the, in the Piot research community that the majority of, the, the majority of uh, academia and research that's written about Piyut is in Hebrew. It's in modern Hebrew. It's in academic modern Hebrew. It's very hard to parse. And if you're not in that world or trained in that world for many years, it, it could be difficult to approach the study of Piyut. And so there are two or three books on the poetry of Rav Shmuel Hashlishi. Over the past, I would say we're in 2022, over the past 98 years or so, there have been 
numerous works, maybe let's say three, four, five books in total on the styles and on the poems of Rav Shmuel HaShlishi. Only recently was a book in English published. Somebody named Gabriel Wasserman, I don't know who he is yet, but I'll find out soon. Um, Gabriel Wasserman got along with Yosef, Professor Yosef Yalom and Professor Naoya Katsumeta, I don't, I don't recall his name, I don't think he's Jewish, a Japanese guy. Um, they got together and they, and they translated one of Yahalom's works on Shmuel HaShlishi into English. I believe the name of the work is uh, Poetic uh, Politics and, let me just find it for you, uh, Political Power and Prayerful Poetry, The Life and Works of Samuel Ben Hoshana. It's an English work. Um, it assumes that it's an English work to, to introduce the uh, English speakers or English academics to the works of Rabbi Shmuel Ben Rabbi Hoshana. And it... It's really, if you are an English speaker and you want English translation, and you're even you know, somewhat mildly interested in Piyut or early Piyut, this is really an interesting, very, very worthwhile book. You can get it on Magnus Press, I believe. Um, a very, very beautiful uh, book on the, the, the prayer and on the Piyut of Rishmuel HaShlishi. It's such, these are such beautiful Yotzrot. It's almost like it would be a miss to see them. So, some of them are, are so so well executed and, and they're, they're very well explained. The historic, the one deficiency I would say of this book is that in the English version at least, uh, he, there's no section for normals. Like the, the historical introduction is for historians. Um, it's very brief and it, it discusses things they assume, you, that they assume that you already know. So if you need an introduction for normals and you need to know more about the, the Eretz Yisrael Academies, and you need to understand the Fatimid Caliphate and the Abbasid Caliphate, and you need to, need to understand uh, Muslim poetry, it's, the, the introduction is not for you. But the poetry is so beautiful, it's, it's, it's worth seeing if you could ever uh, come across a copy. So I was going to share with you tonight just one of his poems because um, I don't own a copy of any of his works, but thanks to the New York Public Library, um, we can look at one of these here together. Okay, so here is an Ofan for Parashat Vayera. And an Ofan is a section of a Yotzer. An Ofan is a section of the Yotzer, which is um, basically by the Ofanim, right? So this is where you, you would put this poem if <coughs> you were going to, you would put this poem here if you were going to um, embellish or sing a Yotzer on the Shabbat, this would go in the area of the Ofanim. So now his Ofanim were his area of innovation. His Ofanim were typically longer and of a different style than Elazar HaKalir. However, just the language here is so much more readable than something you would read from Elazar HaKalir that I, I thought it's, it's much, because in the, in the time of the classical poets, it, we would spend much more, we would have spent a lot more time just parsing every sentence. I think over here we could get through an entire Ofan, even with, we could, we could even get through an entire Ofan without too much difficulty. So the, in Parashat Ve'era, we have the story of the Malachim being sent by Hashem to destroy Sodom. So here he begins, Elim ratzim v'shavim berumu v'tachat. Right? So we have the angels running and returning up high and down low. So Ratzim Veshavim is like Ratzo Veshov and Yecheskel. Angels, they, they run and return. Berumu Betachat. So Elim Ratzim Veshavim, Berumu Betachat. Baal Yasu Shinaim Shlichut Achat. Because two cannot do the, the, mess, the, um, 
the mission of one. Now this is, comes from the Midrash, that two angels cannot do the mission of one, and ni- neither can one angel do the mission of two. So this is, no, Neither can one be sent on two separate missions. Here comes the next uh, stanza. One leapt away, as the Midrash says, and the two turned swiftly. But before their mission, they appeared like men. So right, one of them leapt away, he went to go heal Sarah. The other two came, and they appeared like men. Right, so we've rhymed Ashim, Kanashim, Lubashim. So let me just repeat that. But when they came, their faces turned to be clothed in their angelic um, angelicness. Okay. Zoharim tasim loyafnu oref. Chinucham peol tzivuye kiraga ucheheref. Tikesam shiu svurim shema hakitzaf yeref. Right, gleaming in their flight, they do not turn their necks. Chinucham peol tzivuye kiraga ucheheref. Right, their training is to do kiraga ucheheref, to do their commands swiftly and immediately. Tikesam, but right, Hashem designated them shiu svurim shema hakitzaf yeref. Hashem told them to wait six hours. Perhaps I'm going to change my mind. Just like the Midrash says, right? Six hours, the angels waited. They waited for the mercy of Hashem who peers through the lattices. Perhaps the King of Kings will have mercy. To overturn and destroy the settlement, settlements of the five towns, not the five towns in, in New York, the five towns of Sodom, uh, when they saw that the sun of their fortune had set, they came in the evening to judge them in the darkest night. Right? It's a beautiful, beautiful piyut. Not only is it readable, not only is it easy Hebrew, but it, it rhymes, it can be sung. This very often in some of his, in some of his, uh, uh, some, a lot of his poetry, there are choral refrains. There's, there's areas for a chorus to respond. And they are understandable to the community, and it reminds them of all the Midrashim they've been learning, right? This is before Chumash Rashi. This is, Rashi wasn't born yet, remember. Or maybe he had just been born, right? 1020, when, when was Rashi born? 1060? So this is before Chumash Rashi, and this is when people are being reminded and taught of all the Midrashim which helped them understand the parasha. So you could imagine the immense popularity which came along with reciting the piyutim of Shmuel HaShlishi. And what's remarkable is how how quickly the decline of that community occurred, how it got overtaken by the Babylonian and basically outnumbered by the Babylonian community in Babel, in, uh, sorry, in Cairo. The remnants of the, of the Eretz Yisrael lean, lean communities dwindled in the 12th and 13th centuries. So you had like the last communities in Sicily, the last communities in Cairo and in Syria, began to dwindle, and all of the beautiful minhagim of the school of Jews from Eretz Yisrael, who kept the Talmud Yerushalmi, who kept all the psakim from Eretz Yisrael, or the halacha from Eretz Yisrael, and all the beautiful piyut from Eretz Yisrael, those customs all dwindled and are extinct mostly to time. However, because the Sicilian communities continued uh, those rites, those, those customs, and the um, Spanish communities also received some of the uh, productivity of the piyutim from, from, uh, from Egypt, 
Therefore, we find in early Spanish Mahsorim, as well as even some later Italian Mahsorim, remnants of the, uh, the, the poems of Rav Shmuel Hashlishi. The last time in any Mahsor you ever find a, a poem of Rav Shmuel Hashlishi is in 1580, when there's a, a Mahsor from Italy where they have one part of one Ofan for one parasha, which they didn't know, but was from Rav Shmuel Hashlishi. So it's been roughly 450 years since the last time someone sang a poem from Shmuel Hashlishi was. And until 1896, there had been not a breath of his name. And it, it reminds me of a saying where someone said once that a person dies twice. Once a person dies when he's interred in the ground, and the second time a person dies, which is the last time uh, someone speaks your name. And it's kind of amazing that after a thousand years, this person, who was such a giant in his generation, was only, you know, resurrected, so to speak, in, in, the, uh, in the 20th and the 21st century. One of his most famous poems is on the Mechayeh, is a, is a Mechayeh HaMetim, uh, ironically, where his poem for him, the Megillat Mitzrayim, is a poem where he says, Baruch Mechayeh HaMetim, like, blessed is he who resurrects the dead, because he believed in his, in his uh, misfortune of ending up in the jail that he was going to be killed imminently. So in the 20th century, as I mentioned, his, his, uh, his poems were discovered. Serious academics like Menachem Zulai, Chaim Sherman, Ezra Fleischer, um, Yosef Yehalom, uh, so many serious, serious academics spent their, their blood, blood, sweat, and tears gathering the hundreds and hundreds of fragments from the, if not thousands at that point, of, uh, of Putin from Shmuel Hashishi and finally melting them together into something which even people today could, could really, really appreciate. So that's been it for tonight's topic, a lost uh, figure of history who I hope everyone found interesting. I um, would otherwise thank you for your patience and endurance if you didn't. And Bezat Hashem, next week we will continue with this period, this post-classical period. Some would call this area the late Oriental period or the late Eastern period. Um, and we'll also have to continue perhaps with the Yosef Ibn Avitur. Um, and maybe we'll move next to the late Western period. The late Western period includes the Italian, uh, the Franco Italian Franco and Italian-German poets of the 10th and 11th centuries. So thank you everybody for coming, and we will continue Bezrat Hashem.